This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. And I'm Chris Knutson, your host for today's episode. I trust this finds you doing well wherever you are on the planet and whatever engineering project you're working on. In today's episode, my guest, Dave Willenberg, and I cover a lot of ground. We talk about how he came to be the mind and energy behind Detroit Technical English, and we get into some really useful specifics on how to enhance written and spoken technical communications. Dave has what most are going to label an unconventional engineering career, hence one of the reasons I was excited to get him on the show so that he can share with you his story of how he went from graduating college senior in Michigan to entrepreneur, business owner, and the only technical English instructor to industry in Germany. It's really an inspiring story, and if you take anything away from this part of the show, key in on the importance of creating and acting on your own opportunities. We then unpack the two pillars of technical communications, clarity and concision. Dave shares with us what this means and provides several pieces of actionable advice you can use to improve your written and spoken communications. Both are key to conveying yourself in emails, presentations to clients, proposals, pretty much any type of communications that you're going to undertake in your engineering work. Also, one show note clarification here on the front end. Both Dave and I are going to struggle, and you're going to hear this in the episode, we're both going to struggle and try to remember the name of Amy Cuddy and her excellent TED Talk video on body language and power poses. But no worries. Even though we struggled during the interview, I went back and got the link for you to the video, as well as an article that I wrote on the topic, and you'll find both of those in the show notes. But before we move into the main segment, I want to ask you a question. You know that there are plenty of conferences to attend, but are any of them designed with you in mind? What if there was an event that was designed to solve the challenges you face in your engineering career? Well, there is. It's the Engineering Career Summit. Now in its fourth year, this year's event is 12 to 14 May in New Orleans, and you can grab your tickets at engineeringevent.com. This is the flagship event that Anthony launched a few years ago. I joined on with him this past year. I'm really excited. We're both looking forward to this year's event. It's going to be the best yet, and you can check it out at engineeringevent.com. All right, I want to give a quote related to today's topic to bring us into the show. This one comes from Ludwig Wittgenstein, and it is, the limits of my language means the limits of my world. And as we're going to learn from today's guest, Dave Willenberg, if you expand your language, you might just make the limits of your world beyond what you thought possible. And with that, let's get into the main segment, building crystal clarity in your technical English. Now it's time for the main segment of our show. And for today's main segment, I have with me Dave Willenberg. He's a builder at heart and a teacher by trade. Originally from Detroit, he moved to Hamburg, Germany in 2009, and his company, Detroit Technical English, provides technical English and communications training for engineers, tradesmen, and scientists at companies across Germany. Dave lectures at the Hamburg University of Applied Science and writes the German language blog, Vorsprung der Sprache. Dave, glad to have you on the show. Great to be on board, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing awesome. So this is two Michigan guys living over in Germany. So it's kind of great to have uh, been linked up with you and uh, to have been connected. And I'm glad that we're recording today's episode. Yeah, me too. Small world. (laughs) It's a very small world. So I just want to remind everyone that the show notes for today's show are going to be over at engineercareercoach.com. The show notes, as always, are going to contain a summary of the key points. 
Dave and I are going to discuss in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or other books that are going to be mentioned during the show. And again, you can go over to engineeringcareercoach.com. So we got the uh, got the perfunctionaries out of the way. And of course, if anyone's listening to this, they may be thinking, okay, we've got guest that's on here. I just introduced you as a builder at heart, a teacher by trade. You're running a company called Detroit Technical English. You're living in Germany. And I already mentioned that you came from Detroit. So there's probably some people that may be listening going, okay, what's going on here? How did this individual end up going from the U.S. over to Germany? Why are you on the show? We're obviously going to be talking about clarity in your technical English, which is an important issue for any engineer. Because you and I, Dave, we've had quite a few conversations and, and your story is so interesting. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about how you ended up going from Detroit, Michigan, and have now ended up in, in Hamburg as an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I also sit here and think, what am I actually doing here? How did I end up in this place? Uh, it's been a lot of uh, kind of crazy coincidences and a lot of uh, opportunism on my part. But yeah, happy to end up where I am. Back in university, I was um, I was kind of a go-getter, I guess you could say. I was uh, the kind of guy always trying to strive to get the best grades. Uh, you know, the guy who was always asking to the questions at the end of the lecture and holding everything up like that was kind of me actually uh, <laughs> awesome. and but at the end of my fourth year of university i ended up meeting a couple of other international students becoming really good friends with them but even before that i had done two really great internships at two different construction companies while i was at university i passed the the lead ap exam in 2008 and I kind of had it in my head. I would need to go somewhere. I need to go out and explore the world a little bit. And that came from meeting my two uh, my two international friends, one from France, one from Russia. So started thinking, moving outside the United States, seeing a little bit of the world. And I ended up getting set up with a job offer in Dubai to start doing some environmentally friendly shopping mall construction Problem was that was 2009, and 2009, of course, everyone knows what happens then. And so one day I get a phone call in spring and says, "Sorry, that's really not going to happen anymore." So there was no chance for me to go to Dubai anymore. Uh, I really still wanted to move abroad, do something uh, that would kind of broaden my vision of the world, I guess you could say. And I thought, okay, well, I've had three years of German in high school. If I'm going to move somewhere, I definitely want to learn a foreign language. So why not learn German? And so I uh, looked for opportunities to continue studying. And I found a place to study at the Hamburg University of Applied Sciences, Long story short, I graduated in May and then jumped on a one-way flight to Hamburg in September. And after a couple of weeks here, I met a bunch of other Americans because obviously I didn't speak German to a point that point yet. It was easy to connect with them. I met them and they said, "Well, hey, why don't you why don't you just teach English?" And I'd never even considered that as an option. I had I didn't even know that that was a thing to do. But once I started looking around, it was obvious that there was a lot of opportunity to be able to do that at the time. And so I switched my visa. I stopped uh, – I, I deregistered myself from the university and started teaching English. So after that, I ended up teaching English just kind of by chance at a bigger uh, oil refinery here in Hamburg. 
And once I started teaching the engineers and a lot of the technical people, I kind of realized the value of the knowledge that I had of kind of having a technical background, understanding project management, understanding, you know, different parts of uh, the, the construction and building trades that they were working with. And after that, I realized that there's nobody really doing this. There's nobody – if you're an engineer, you're probably not going to teach English. That's not really a kind of career path that people go down. And – not only that, I realized that it was a lot of times that I was sitting in a room with a very high level, very experienced project manager or the CEO of a shipping company or somebody who has a very high level of or technical degree of skill. And I get to sit in an office with this person and talk to them with the intent of improving their English. But when they're at that high of a level, their English is obviously good enough to where I'm not teaching them this is a table, this is a chair. And it ended up turning into, so teach me everything that you know about what you do, and I'll make sure that you are able to say it correctly in English. And so at the end of the day, I ended up kind of getting, like, I realized I was just getting lessons in all of these different fields of uh, engineering and uh, applied sciences, but I was the one getting paid for it. That's awesome. Yeah. After I realized that, I said, this is something that I'm definitely uh, interested in pursuing. And yeah, that's how Detroit Technical English was born. That's an amazing story. And I think the important element that I took away from that, Dave, was the fact that you, I mean, you already had this motivation and this go get them, you know, type A type mentality, action mentality, what I call an execution mentality. But more important than that, you essentially were able to to see opportunities and to, and to take action on them when you saw them, which is something I think a lot of people are going to be, you know, would look at and have some trepidation about doing that. And I, and I realized that you were in a position in in your life. You didn't have kids. You didn't have maybe other responsibilities that made right. You know, making the opportunities and then actually going after them. But I applaud you for the fact that you you did that anyway because it's still a lot of risk involved with that. That's pretty amazing, especially again, like I said, because we've had so many conversations about what you've been able to do with that. So you know, being able to take that knowledge that you've got and the knowledge that you that you did have at that point as an engineer and, and understanding project management. What was still kind of your greatest challenge in making that pivot from really what you thought was going to be a career that was going to be technically aligned with what you had studied in university to now being in this position where not only are you teaching English, which is something that usually scares engineers, I will tell you that it scared the heck out of me. It has for most of my career, had for most of my career, but that shift from engineering and, and really kind of technical to not only teaching English, but then also adding on top of that really becoming an entrepreneur and putting together a business and building that business. What was that greatest challenge that you had in making that pivot? I have to admit, I kind of started at a little bit of an advantage. I'm actually, I guess you, if you want to put it this way, I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. So basically everyone down the line in my family has kind of uh, owned a business at some point. My family owns a pizzeria, for example, in the Detroit metro area. My grandfather owns a steel fabrication shop in the Detroit area that was started and founded by his father. So I kind of grew up actually in the entrepreneurial environment and the small business management environment. So I think I had a little bit of an advantage there as far as uh, being able to see opportunity and jump on it. But definitely one of the biggest challenges was once I kind of made that decision, it was it was no longer an option to learn what to do. It's I, If I'm going to kind of you know forge myself in the fires of entrepreneurship, then 
is finding the time and the effort to learn exactly what goes into that and then finding out just how deep this rabbit hole of entrepreneurship goes and especially in today's connected world. So for example, you want to you want to start a business and you want to get noticed. So you start to learn, okay, what is what's is the best way to do that? Google search and you find, okay, content uh, content marketing, uh, writing a blog, providing value through people through your website. And then so okay, I'm going to write a blog. So how do I get people to subscribe to my blog? Well, now I need a newsletter. Okay, so I want people to subscribe to my newsletter. How do I get people to do that? Oh, so what's a landing page? You know, now all of a sudden I have to learn how to create a landing page. And then to do that, I need to have actionable copywriting. All of that needs to be done uh, in a way that is best for search engine optimization. And after all of that, you have to be able to use analytics tools to know what works and what doesn't work. And so, yeah, the hardest part was definitely learning how to do all of that because it's not something that not a lot of people look at if you're not really into it. But then once you start down that road, there's a lot to it. And you know that as much as I do. We've had that conversation before. Yeah, absolutely. There is there is a lot. And I was just kind of having a little bit of a smile on my face. <laughs> yeah. I, know that, I know that Anthony and I both have, have been learning quite a lot and continue to learn a lot about content marketing and the, all the mechanics and the processes that are on the back end that many people don't see and may not ever touch. But a part of what this, especially with this episode is going to be about is sort of unpacking that, hey, there's this whole other world that's out there and there's these other things that are out that are that are going on when we start talking about communications and the writing side of it. So that may be something that we look at depending on the kind of feedback we get. And I'll just put this out to all the listeners out there that if you're interested in wanting to know more about that, then by all means, leave comments for Anthony and I and we can look at putting together in an episode and maybe Dave even bringing you back in where we can talk through what these processes look like on the backside for content marketing and the subscription services and how to build a mailing list and all these other things that we've learned as we've gone along. Because it's uh, there is a process associated with it, but a lot of it is is you know, learning and trial by fire. <laughs> so it's uh, Google a whole lot of Google searching. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, a whole lot of Google. And I would also say reaching out to other, to finding mentors and other people. So this is, you know, just a pivot in the questions here again. So as you were going through all this process, did you find yourself reaching out to find mentors or were you able to find a mentor that, that could help guide you through not only this shift, this international shift and in, in getting integrated into Hamburg and to, into a new cultural environment, but then also putting this business together and getting yourself lined up so that you had that piece of it in place. I wouldn't say that I necessarily reached out and asked for direct advice from anybody. But what I did do is kind of identify the people that I considered experts on different topics and then was sure to kind of absorb all of the advice and all of the direction that they posted through their own content marketing so it's kind of funny. There was, you know, there's one blog for digital kind of a graphic design and image creation service. It's called Snappa. And the guy who runs it, Chris, has an amazing content marketing blog. He's the founder of the company. And then he writes this blog on simply on content marketing. And so I found myself reading this blog and then wanting to know more and then putting down my newsletter or putting down my email for his newsletter. And then all of a sudden it just kind of hit me at this one point that was like, I am his conversion. Like this is me wanting like his product. And then once his product launched and they went to from a beta to a pro, I was more than happy to subscribe to their service and use that for all of my kind of graphic design needs. It saves me a bunch of time and they've provided a huge amount of value for me. 
And so it was kind of at that point where I realized how this actually worked of once you step back and say like, okay, this is me as the customer and I am their conversion right now, but everyone's kind of getting value out of that and then just kind of modeling everything after that afterwards. That's great. So it's sort of an, it's almost an engineering type of approach to um, putting all that together. So you're looking looking at a best practice and you're just mm-hmm. you're deconstructing the machine. <laughs> Let's rip this yeah. thing apart and figure yeah. out how did he put it together and how can I put mine together in a way that's going to work the same way. So I think it's uh, awesome. I maybe shift the, the conversation here a little bit because I want to move it towards communications. And again, with your expertise and experience now, as you've made this shift from engineering construction management, construction mainstream project management, and into the English realm, <laughs> English teaching realm, yeah. yeah. what have you found to be a big mistake that engineers make with their written communications? I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see is that Engineers tend to not really realize just how much their writing influences perception. That meaning what you write influences how other people see you. So you might think that you're just sending some kind of simple email to somebody or to a contractor or to a supplier, and you might not think that it's really that important to kind of go back and check for any kind of spelling or grammar errors What people don't really realize and what engineers tend to overlook because it's so focused on what the focus of the message is and the point is there and we don't need anything to be pretty. But at the other end, when you are reading through a message, even kind of subconsciously, when you're reading through a message and you see that there is some kind of mistake in grammar or there is a misspelt word, it's like listening to somebody kind of play a beautiful Beethoven symphony on the piano and all of a sudden they hit that one wrong note and it's just and you go, okay, so all of a sudden my perception of you as a piano player just dropped a tiny little bit, okay? And so that's kind of one thing that I realized that a lot of engineers overlook is how you write influences people's perception of you as a business professional. And then the other thing is that writing needs to compensate for the lack of nonverbal communication. So when we're actually speaking with somebody, what we're saying with our words isn't always necessarily the message that's going across. We can use our hands, we can use the tone of our voice, so we can use the position of our body to communicate different things and different messages. But when you're writing and you're, when you're sending an email, the only thing that you really have are those words that are there on the screen. And I teach this to a lot of my German engineers as well, is how do you create actionable writing? If you need somebody to take action, you need somebody to do something, A lot of times I'll have engineers do a writing exercise. You need to fix this mistake. A company sent you the wrong product. You need it for your project. Email to their service professional and fix this. And people end up writing things like, would you please do this? Or could you possibly send me this? And those are things that are great when you're talking to somebody even on the phone or if you're talking to somebody in person because through your nonverbal communication, you can tell them, I'm asking you, but I'm not really asking you. However, when you read something like that and you read a request or more of an assertive demand in the form of a question, it kind of drops the reader's perception of the importance of that request just a little bit. And so if you really want to get things done, it's also very important to know that you need to phrase things in a way that's going to cause people to take action. That's a massive point. Yeah, I just really almost want to footstop that one because it's the first time that I've actually... Dave, in, in conversations I've had with people, ever really heard that through the writing piece to be that directive. Of course, the importance of perception, I think, is undervalued mm-hmm. 
by many people, not only in the way that they write, but the way that they carry themselves, perhaps how they dress. I mean, everything. It's Everything is perception. Mm-hmm. Be that good or bad or however you might want to look at it, that's just the fact of human existence and certainly for a professional existence. I think it's a really, really good point on being very direct in your written communications have you ever felt that there's a, a point where maybe it comes across in the written communications that it could be perceived incorrectly that you're being direct, you're using, you know, instead of saying, could you please do this or would you please do that? Right. Of course, it's a matter of finding a balance between the two. You don't just write an email to somebody and say, you screwed up this order, send me a new one by next week. And of course, something like making threats or there will be – yeah, of course, okay, that's not the way that you go about doing it. There is a balance between writing in a way that creates action and using an assertive voice, but the, also balancing that to phrase things in a way that's going to be also perceived as polite and proper business etiquette. It's really along the lines, more along the lines of removing the questions I'll, – I'll just call it question of doubt, which is really the questions like would you please do this or could you please do that? But moving more to the point of, you know, I need you to do this by that date Mm -hmm. or this was incorrect, which is unfortunate. Therefore, we need X, Y and Z by this date to be resolved. Exactly. That's a really important point because it's it's actually as you mentioned that to me, I see the question piece all the time. (laughs) All the time. All the time. Yep. And it's only natural. If you don't think about it, you write the words that you would normally say to somebody if you're talking on the phone. But there's so much more that goes into face-to-face or even telephone communication. There was a really good example, actually. Sorry, I forget her name right now. But it was talking about there's more than even another aspect of nonverbal communication altogether. And it's literally biochemical. And it's, for example, the position that you hold your body in influences the chemistry in your brain, which is then subconsciously perceived as other people as this is the alpha male of the group and I need to take action on what he's doing, kind of that primal instinct. So there's so many more elements of nonverbal communication when you're talking to somebody face-to-face. However, when you're just sitting in front of a keyboard and you only have those words, there's nothing but those words to convey 100% of your message. And so it's really important to understand that the, you have nothing but the way that you use those words to be able to say what you want to say. That's huge. And I know exactly what you're talking about on the biochemistry piece, and I can't think of her name either. I believe it was Amy Cutter. Yeah, I think that's who it was, and it was it's power poses. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, yep, and for, for purposes of everyone who's listening to Dave and I try to figure out what, what we're talking this, yeah. about— I'll do the research and we'll make sure that we, in the show notes, we've got the link because she has a spectacular TED Talk and there's some other resources where you can go out and you can get tapped into this because it's actually pretty interesting. I'm going to add a note because I actually, I show this video to pretty much all of my students uh, and create a discussion with it. But uh, one thing they might want to notice, notice the color of lipstick that she's wearing. Just think about that and how it draws your attention onto what she's saying. That is an interesting point. We'll definitely, definitely do that. So this is going to segue right in because we're, we're talking about written communications and big mistakes that engineers can make with that. So let's flip that around and go to one of the other major forms of communications that engineers find themselves in a lot, which is spoken communication. So what are some big mistakes that engineers are making with their spoken communications? With spoken communication, it can be a little bit different. In spoken communication, 
you of course need to realize the nonverbal communication that I brought on before, your body position, the tone of the voice that you're using, what you're doing with your hands, how you're sending messages without actually sending messages. One of the big things is if you see somebody that's pointing their foot towards the door or something like that, that normally means that they want to leave. Uh, understanding nonverbal communication is one really, really big advantage that you can have when you're speaking with somebody face-to-face because you can not only read their body language and get a little bit of, I would call it like a metadata from them, but when you're actually using the words that you use in communication also play a big role as well. And it has a lot to do with how you convey your technical message in a way that's relatable and you don't sound like you're talking like a robot. So again, it's this balance of understanding how people speak face-to-face with one another using things like idioms, using phrases or sayings or nicknames for objects or technical jargon. And then on the other hand, being able to clearly communicate a technical message in a way that if somebody outside the conversation were to hear your recorded words and try and pull a message out of that, that they would still be able to get that value from it. Yeah, I think one of the other the other elements that's important to kind of highlight here is the fact that if as an individual becomes more aware of how they're speaking, mm-hmm. the words and how they're conveying conveying their message, not just the words written down themselves that perhaps they've rehearsed numerous times, but but now all these other unspoken elements of communications. Where are you holding your hands? How are you using your hands? Facial expressions, all these other elements. It really brings into it necessity to be very present on how you're doing what you're doing when you're there in that moment. So it's uh, something else that I find a lot of individuals perhaps have challenges with, which is you get into that situation where you're having the communications, you're talking with somebody else and you're maybe wrapped up in the moment and you just lose lose sight of the fact that you may be physically moving yourself towards the door yeah <laughs> when you're having a communications with somebody uh, which can which can obviously transmit to the other person probably not the message that you're trying to transmit to them so I think it's a those are both important so let's say that I'm listening to this and that's all great and this is all great both on the written you know great information on the written and the spoken communications if someone wanted to get a little bit more information on how they might be able to enhance their technical communication skills, what are some tips that you would tell them to do? If you want to improve your technical communication, you need to kind of realize the two, the two I call them the two foundations or the two pillars of technical communication. And this is what I teach, and it's basically the first one is clarity, and the second one is concision. So the first one, clarity. Clarity is using words and presenting a message in a way that leaves absolutely no room for any other type of interpretation. And one really good example of this is the simplified technical English that's used in the aviation industry. It spawned from actually an initiative, I believe, by Caterpillar in the 1970s. But it's basically, it's a, it's a constructed language which means it has basically rules and guidelines, which words you can use, which words you can't use, how many words in a sentence you can state, how you phrase different things. And it's basically, it was meant for the aviation industry on how to, for example, write technical manuals. And then in the end, it was basically made to just save on translation costs. But the point is, if you read simplified technical English, it's not something that you're going to read a novel in, but if you read a technical manual that's written in proper simplified technical English, you're going to know exactly what to do. And there's not going to be, oh, well, do they mean this thing or do they mean that other thing? That's clarity. That's conveying a message in a way that there leaves no room for any other interpretation other than what your actual message is. 
And the second one is concision. And it's not like these two are a yin and yang kind of thing. These actually uh, – these go together. These fit together and complement each other 100%. Concision is not saying anything more than you need to. One example that I give to Germans all the time is, for example, Germans tend to say of the instead of using the word s to or the start using the letter s to show that something belongs to somebody. So instead of saying, for example, as we would say, my dad's house, they would say the house of my dad. But what I try and teach them is, okay, instead of just putting an apostrophe in an s, you're adding two more words to this sentence that you don't need. And the thing is, when you look at communication from the standpoint of concision, you can look at it almost as like an engineered system. The more words that you have in a sentence means your message, your system has now become more complicated. And especially in an international context, once your message becomes more complicated, you have a higher probability for failure. And that's exactly what we want to try and reduce. And failure meaning misinterpretation, not comprehending the message that you want to send. So it's essentially say exactly what you want to say with no other way for anyone else to interpret something otherwise. And don't say anything more than you need to. Extremely valuable point. So clarity and concision. So let me ask a follow-up to that, Dave. Does, Does that change... Does that construct change depending upon the audience that you're delivering to? So let's say let's say I'm interacting with you and you're a supplier to a project that I'm working on. We already have an established relationship. You know, we, we already know each other. I feel less uncomfortable being very clear and concise with you when I send an email to you. Mm-hmm. But let's say it's new in a business relationship, new in a project, or my audience, it's really, let's it's a client. You know, it's somebody that I'm trying to pursue to do business with. Oh, and context is absolutely everything. Yeah, I know, exact, I know exactly what you mean. If you're working on, for example, if you're working on a construction project and you're working as part of the, uh, you're, you're on the GC team and you're sending an email to a supplier or to a contractor and this relationship has already been established and it's not like this person is going to say, oh, well, he kind of, he kind of sounds like a jerk in his email, so I don't want to do business with him anymore. No, it's already been signed. Business is underway, so let's not make anything prettier than it needs to be. Let's get the message across because this is how we accomplish our objective. Now, if you're a salesperson, on the other hand, and you are trying to obviously convince uh, some kind of company to buy your product or your service, then yes, you are absolutely going to be using different language that's tailored more towards creating a friendly presence. And again, it goes back to knowing how your words and your messages using this language in a way that conveys what your actual meaning is. So if your meaning is, I want to be nice to you and I want to convince you and I want you to feel through my message that I am a friendly person, that's great if you're writing to a sales lead as a salesperson. However, if I'm one engineer talking to another engineer or an architect, let's cut that out. We don't really need that. Let's focus on the mission here. We're going to be, you know, probably having some informal communication between us, grabbing, maybe grabbing a beer after work or going out to a business lunch. You understand me. You get what I mean. And so if I send an email to you that only has the information that you need and I'm not putting all kinds of greetings and I hope your weekend was nice and things like that, we're good on that. We're cool with that. That's a great point. Clarifying point, especially. So we're really looking at looking at the context, the context of what that communication is going to be in. And then from there, you can craft that message with the right level of clarity and concision that needs to be in there. I personally see this. I think most of the listeners are going to say, okay, I understand that because I see that as well. 
in the communications that I've got on a day-to-day basis with a lot of the projects that I'm working. So I think that people can wrap wrap their minds around that. And it's a nice way to, nice way really to package it, you know, look at the context. And then from that, you can determine the level of clarity and concision that you need to have moving forward. On the other hand, it's also as the receiver of this message, it's also something that you need to understand from the comprehension level. You don't want to get an email for, if you're the type of person who gets an email that has nothing but the practical technical information that you need and no kind of friendly greetings or anything like that. And you think like, Oh, I wonder why this email is so short and concise. Why is this person mad at me? Did I do something wrong? You're looking at it the wrong way. There's different levels of communication between interpersonal and kind of you know friendly communication than there is for something which is designed to achieve some kind of technical objective. So let me ask this question. This is really a, almost a build on what we're just talking about right now. Have you seen in the different companies that you've worked with or any of the different project teams that you've worked with where they've set through expectations in how they're going to communicate either written or spoken and how they convey the information between their teams or individuals? As far as communications between teams, that's not something that I really go into as much. I'm focused more on the level of international communication between, for example, partners on different projects, customers and suppliers on an international scale. So in the context of what's going on in the company, for me, that's German. <laughs> and that's not something that I touch on too much. Uh, the, what I've touched on before as far as actual technical communication, that's regardless of language. Okay. As far as setting standards and guidelines for intercompany communications, the only thing that I've really seen is companies taking the initiative to, for example, establish a internal company glossary that says, okay, for this specific piece of this specific component, we are going to use this word, even though you can use these three different words in English and these seven different words or combination of words in German, we are going to say this and don't say anything else other than this word. And that's actually a really brilliant way to clarify the communication within company or within a team is even if you're just on an individual project, set and establish defined vocabulary so that everybody knows when you use this word, this is exactly what we're talking about and do not refer to this as anything else because you could confuse people. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant point. And I know that within some of the some of the project teams that I work with, in fact the one that, you know, especially with Anthony and, and the team that we've got, we've actually moved away from email in a lot of the work that we do. We use a, a program called Slack. Oh yeah, okay. I'm on Slack. It's awesome. I we absolutely love it. Within the team that we've got, you know, we've even established a lexicon of acronyms that are used within the team so that we're even- True engineering style right there. Yes. Oh, yeah. So we're we're able to, you know, roll in that military experience as well. So we're able to be very- (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, true. Yeah. So we're able to be very clear and concise in transmitting very, very brief messages with that have a lot of words because we're using acronyms, but they're all established- if somebody doesn't know what they are, they can go look at the little, the list, the cheat sheet that we've got in Evernote and take a look at what the uh, what that acronym means. So the takeaway for everyone listening on this is that if you're in a project team, let's say you're the project lead for that, it may be worthwhile just having a conversation with your team about these two pillars of technical communications of clarity and concision, and then having some discussions about in really agreement on how you're going to communicate 
And so that there's that unspoken belief that perhaps if I get a message from, you know, if I get Dave sends me a message and it literally just had, there's no greeting, there's no salutation at the end, and all it is is just the information, that we know that that's okay. And of course, if he sends me another meeting and says, hey, we're going to be meeting together for uh, beers on Friday afternoon, that probably is going to be different. But if we're communicating on a project, it can be very, very beneficial to just let's get the details out back and forth and then move on to the next issue at hand. So that's a great one. I'm glad we unpacked that one. So we're going to kind of shift things up a little bit more because I want to move back into the international realm of this because uh, some of our listeners are, are either working in international jobs or they're, they're considering wanting to, to make that move from, let's say, working in the U.S. to an international environment. So how hard have you found it to be in establishing your company in Germany and of course, this could this is going to differ between any other location that somebody may be going to. But let's just say, how hard has it been to establish yourself outside of the United States? And what are some of the things that you've done to help yourself bridge the cultural divide? Well, for me, being primarily a language school puts kind of an extra special emphasis on the importance of using proper language in any kind of text that I use to represent myself anywhere. That means if I have even simple mistake in German that's on one of my websites or a blog post or something like that, I'm automatically held to a higher standard in language. The thing is, I speak German and my German is great, but it's not great enough to a level to where, for example, I'm going to try and write my own marketing copy. And so, for example, my for my blog, I use a translator. I'm not afraid to admit that. And I have a lot of friends that are helping me out with things like uh, creating – I'll send a text message. Uh, can I say this in some kind of advertisement or can I put this into a tweet, for example? And because I have that kind of extra expectation of a higher standard of language, that's really been kind of one of the biggest challenges in establishing a company in Germany, especially when it's language and communications-based. As far as adapting to the German culture, it's really actually really difficult when you know you go to learn about these different kinds of aspects of business, sales, marketing, all these different aspects. And of course, what I'm reading first and foremost is all of these kinds of things in English. But then I have to somehow try and take all of this advice and all of these things that I'm learning about the things that we spoke about before, about content marketing, about copywriting and then adapt to them because I have to do this in a foreign language. And that's really difficult, actually. That's been one of the hardest parts for me. And as far as working with Germans and adapting to the German culture, Germans are, are known for having this kind of level of skepticism towards new concepts or new ideas. <laughs> and so, of course, it's definitely been a very big challenge to overcome is not only am I presenting you this kind of new idea that, you know, you're going to learn English, not just from somebody with a background in, I don't know, art history or something, but from an actual engineer, which hasn't really happened. And not only that, but I'm approaching you as a foreigner, and I'm not going to admit that also has an impact on it as well. I'm going to approach you as a foreigner with this idea, and that uh, kind of actually automatically drops the initial trust level a little bit to begin with. So it's, yeah, it's definitely been a challenge to establish a business here, not only in a foreign language and in a foreign country, but there are you know steps that I've taken to try and uh, mitigate some of these challenges. Using a translator has definitely been one of the biggest ones. Well, in, in true engineer fashion and project manager fashion, you've you've mitigated your risks. So that's, yeah, that's, that's great. Nice that's do. awesome. Yeah, if I'm, I'm going to put the effort into it. I'm gonna, I want to get the maximum impact. So let's do it. 
that's awesome. And, and what I will what I will recommend to everyone <laughs> is to not do what I did. <laughs> Gosh, this is over a decade ago. It was my first uh, assignment in Germany. I was a director of public works for an organization. Had about they were tradesmen, so carpenters and heavy equipment operators, electricians all the different types of trades that you would imagine in a public works department. And you're going to love, you're going to love this, Dave. Most of the people working for me were German. Okay. My deputy was, was German. My secretary was German. All of my craft leads were, were German. So out of, uh, let's say 250 people, almost nearly 225 were German. And so (laughs) you were that guy. I'm the head here. So guess what, everyone, we are speaking English for, yeah, we're speaking English. I wanted to be international. I wanted to be able to basically transcend the divide, the language divide. And although I, you know, I understood very, very, very basic German, you know, how to order a beer and where, where's the toilet, you know, I was always sharing information with the people that work for me in English, almost like a newsletter, if you will, uh-huh. kind of here's what's going on. So I figured, you know what, I would be crafty over the weekend. And this is back in like 2000 and gosh, this was 2000. So this is 16 years ago at this point. And I used Google translate which is is better now but i'll tell you right now don't rely on google translate to be the way that it, you translate english into anything i put together my message my newsletter i translated it using that and i sent it out <laughs> no i know how this ends okay you know where this is going so my secretary uh, bless her soul came in this is like on a this is a monday later in the day on monday she comes in she goes she just looks at me and she goes uh, hopeman knutson please do not ever do that again and and that was all she said. <laughs> Turned around and walked out. And and of course the context being lost on there is is understanding who who Dagmar was. But it was uh, I I literally felt um, after she said that I felt about two inches tall. And uh, it was it was pretty funny. It was only later on that I went back and asked Victor, who was my deputy, on so what was translated. And he just laughed at me. As a technical language specialist, it was um, I'm actually I'm I'm approaching a lot of my customers and a lot of, uh, for example, subscribers to my newsletter and blog, and uh, I'm asking them, you know, do you have this kind of internal established vocabulary, English and German? Uh, because I'm working on a project right now for a free vocabulary trainer as a smartphone platform, and I actually this just happened yesterday. I had uh, this uh, this project manager from a company which sells steel cutting equipment for the steel industry. And asked him, where have you been learning your vocabulary for these kinds of uh, tasks and these kinds of projects? And he says, oh, you know, we, well, we have these really well-written product brochures and I've pulled most of the vocabulary from that. And he sends me these, he sends me these two product brochures and they're some of the most beautiful design and layout that I've seen on a product brochure in a long time. I immediately, the first sentence in the email that I responded, give your graphic designer a high five. That is absolutely beautiful. However... The text, I got to the second page, and I'm marking it up on my surface using a pen and everything. I couldn't get through the second page looking at the actual English that they used. It was the exact same thing. They just put it into Google Translate, put it on there. And so they have this beautifully looking product brochure, but the actual language that is on there, it it wasn't even English. At least it wasn't the English that you should use to represent your company on the international market. I can tell you that. For me, that's like, that's heartbreaking. Well, it is. And I think the lesson from the story that I shared and what you just shared with us is that if you're working in this, we're going to be working in an international environment. This goes back to one of the statements that we made earlier is that perception is everything. Absolutely. So you can be a leader or you can be the leader of an industry or the leader of a product line or just a a leader or wanting to be a kind of a, a thought producer or somebody who's on the front end of that and be very, very exceptionally good at what you're doing 
in the language that you speak with the people that you interact with on a day-to-day basis, but you cannot make an assumption that you're going to be able to transmit that to another culture or to in another language without having somebody there to help you. So I, I learned the hard way, and it sounds like this company is going to be learning maybe perhaps the same, and hopefully they're able to build from that and move on. So let me ask you this question, because it's it's one that, that comes up in my own mind, and then I know that you interact you interact way more with, with German engineers than I have, even in my own experiences. What have you discovered to be some of the biggest differences between engineers, U.S., American engineers, and engineers that you've worked with here in Germany? Well, one of the things that kind of surprised me really early on and even kind of continues to surprise me today is this kind of and it's not even only for Germans it's kind of just a general kind of business mentality overall is this German mentality of yeah we'll get it figured out somehow some way nobody there's never any kind of real like panic mode everybody just kind of has this assumption in their mind that no matter what happens we're going to find a way to make it work. And somehow they actually find a way to make it work. So if you can be on the member of a project team and you can have very important bid for your project or for some kind of objective coming up. And then all of a sudden in the middle of summer, four members or all of your members go on their typical four week, you know, European holiday. And then you have this project deadline coming up and you just kind of say like, yeah, we'll make it work. It'll, it'll happen. And it does. And that's one thing that I still have yet to figure out. But that's something that I definitely never found when I was uh, living and working in the United States. You know, everything's pre-planned. We need to make sure we have the resources here to be able to do what we need to do. But for some reason, Germans have this mentality of we're going to make this work. And for some reason or somehow, they end up making it work. (laughs) That's awesome. And I've never heard that before either. So that's brilliant. I will have to share that with some of my German (laughs) <laughs> my German engineer friends. <laughs> I won't bring your name up, so we'll keep it secret. Oh, we'll just put it on a podcast to a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> That's fine. No, no, I have these discussions with my students. It's an issue of mentality, you can say. And one of the things, you know, that I always kind of tell pe- anybody who's looking to move abroad or to go into live in a different country is understanding this concept the sociological term is ethnocentrism. That's you are going to judge everything about another culture based on your own culture. And so if you look at, for example, if you look at something like Korean culture and the fact that you will probably never hear Korean say no to you, it'll always be, yeah, okay, I'll come to your birthday party. And then they just, you know, won't show up. For us, that just sounds strange. Why would you do that? Why would you say yes and just not show up? But on the other hand, for something like in Korean culture, that's the standard. That's what you do because you don't want to make anybody look bad or you don't want to look bad yourself by refusing something. And so it's just you assume that they know that when you say yes, you probably mean no. But we look at it from a Western culture point of view and we say, why would you tell me something that isn't true? And so it's this concept of ethnocentricity That's really important to understand when you're considering moving to another culture or moving to another country is there isn't necessarily always a right way to do things. It's more important to figure out what's considered right in the new environment that you're in rather than try and force your ideals of right on everyone else that's around you. That's certainly something that I've I know myself, Dave, have picked that up from from the work that I've done in Korea, in the Middle East, uh, having lived here in Europe and moved around, you know, worked around quite a bit. One of the things that uh, very early on in my career I was exposed to, and it sounds like the same thing for yourself, very early in your career has been this need to be able to 
shelf the belief that what you've seen work and how you've seen the processes work and the mindsets work back in the U.S., that's not the way that it is in the rest of the world. I mean, there, there certainly is its place, but there's multiple different ways to get a project accomplished. There's multiple different ways to solve a problem. And there's certainly a multiple different ways to be able to interact with people. And then these cultural aspects that play into it are so vitally important. So it's certainly if you're going to be in this position where you are working with an international team or going to be going international, so much the necessity to be able to do the research and do the homework so that you are able to better operate in that environment and be more effective for, for everyone from a leadership standpoint. Yeah. And one thing that I've learned actually is there's nothing wrong with making that point clear. There's no reason why you should try and step into another culture and pretend from day one that you're some kind of expert in this culture because you've read German business for dummies or something like that. People understand this. People understand if you say, I'm sorry, I'm interpreting it this way, but I'm new here. I don't fully understand everything about where I am. Can you please clarify this for me in a way to make sure and reinforcing your own understanding of something? It's not something that you should be embarrassed of doing because I would never expect and anybody who is intelligent enough to realize that there's this foreigner, you know, in my country who is doing these things that they should know automatically everything about how things work where you are. And so in that kind of sense, it works two ways. And it's important just to know that Nobody is going to hold you to the standard of being from where they are if you're not from where they are. It's a great point to bring that up, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're working in Korea and, and you're clearly American, it's going to be pretty pretty evident that you're not Korean. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> exactly. So why would you have a problem with saying, I'm not from here, I don't understand what's going on, please tell me what's going on? You'll save yourself a lot of time and actually – Instead of trying to save yourself from the embarrassment of being this ignorant person in this other culture, of actually being somebody who's you know smart enough to know that they're someone new in this kind of culture and they're not only interested in solving this problem or getting this information and interpreting it in the right kind of way, but they're also self-aware enough to know that they're in a foreign culture and they need a little bit of assistance. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And I've learned just from my own experiences that I have never been in the position where where the uh, the other people that I was working with or even in social settings, the other people I was with, if, if I didn't understand what was going on, I always asked questions. I never felt embarrassed and never once did I ever have, was I ever in a position where the other person was unwilling or thought it was funny or, or whatever. They usually, again, it changes the conversation because, well, this individual you know, Chris is aware enough to be able to ask these questions. So mm -hmm. obviously he's interested. It's a great, great point. And it's actually a great way to kind of form an interpersonal connection with somebody. Absolutely. It's something that's so obvious, something that's sitting in front of you. Uh, it is so obvious to both parties that it actually makes a really great kind of like, you know, even like a small talk standpoint of saying like, oh, I'm new here and uh, this is something new to me. It's something that everybody can relate to and it's something that you can actually segue into building more communication and building more of a relationship with. Absolutely. So Dave, if, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? If they want to learn more about me, I'd say you can definitely follow me on Twitter at Detroit English. And if you're cool with using Google Translate for a website, <laughs> I've actually, I've gone on my own blog and I've used Google Translate and you can get the gist of what I'm saying. It's not going to, don't expect it to be pretty because Google Translate has come a long way, as we've mentioned, but uh, it's not 100% there, but you'll understand what I'm saying. 
you can follow me on my blog at detroit-english.de slash vds-blog. Great. And we'll get the links in the show notes for that. And uh, yeah, and if you do that and use use Google Translate and send it out to your team, you may or may not have your secretary come in and, uh, and yell at you. So we'll see what happens right. on the next side of it. So uh, that's great. Dave, uh, hopefully you'll stick with me here in today's uh, Take Action Today segment. And if, if so, we've got some actionable advice that uh, all of you that are out there listening can implement or otherwise put to good use in your engineering career. So Dave, you're willing to stick around? Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Everyone will be back in just a moment. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. And before Dave and I share two pieces of actionable advice, I'd like to remind you about the Engineering Career Summit that Anthony and I are going to be hosting down in New Orleans the 12th through the 14th of May. This is the only event designed from the ground up to transform engineers from educated technical professionals into effective communicators, powerful networkers, and dynamic leaders. The Engineering Career Summit is designed with one purpose in mind, to provide you with actionable steps you can take to move your career and life to a whole new level past the blocks, hurdles, or challenges you're currently facing. It's not a professional organization trade show, and it's not a two-day PDH cram session. It's an opportunity to connect with other motivated engineers just like you and hear from successful engineers and thought leaders on topics like leadership, networking, and communications, the topics we've been talking about today in this episode, also touching on business development, and much, much more. Oh, and there's going to be plenty of chances to socialize with others during awesome after-session networking events and dinners. So the tickets are on sale now. Head over to engineeringevent.com and reserve yours today. Anthony and I and everyone else that's going to be there are going to love to see you down there. So, okay, I want to share with you this call to action. It can be for any engineer author that's out there who's been hesitating about launching a blog or writing for a professional organization's trade journal or their blog or some other outlet. If you've been holding back because you're concerned about your communications, your writing level, your writing skills, all I can tell you is stop. Write a piece today and take action to get it published. I published my first article in a professional organization's trade journal back in 2009, and I've published many, many more since then, and I launched my first blog, The Engineer Leader, back in 2011. And for the longest time, I had this mental block that engineers just weren't good writers and that I certainly wasn't a good writer and I couldn't become one. And that isn't so. Anybody can be a good writer. It just takes persistence, patience, and practice. And hopefully if you've learned anything from today's episode and from listening to Dave talk about his journey from engineer and project manager to English teacher and now becoming an expert in technical English, not only English, but this translation of the German is to just get out there and do it. So go ahead, write that first piece, get it out there. The entry barrier to publication is literally non-existence, especially with like LinkedIn and Metal and some of the other platforms that are out there. You really can't use the excuse that you don't know what to do and you don't know how to set up a blog. So get out there, start today. Now, Dave, what's one thing that an engineer can do to adapt their communications when they're working on, let's say, an international project or they're going to be involved in international business with other members who are using English as a second language? For that, I'm going to have to give you first a little bit of a grammar lesson. Okay, first of all, we know that verbs, verbs are words that we use for actions. Eat, sleep, go, get. Now, imagine yourself 
learning a foreign language. All of these words you now have to learn, okay? Gehen, sitzen, essen, trinken, those are some examples in German. Now, realize that in English we do this really weird thing where we combine these verbs that we have with prepositions, words that show relationships between things. On, off, under, to, from. And when you combine those, you get a completely different meaning of what that original verb is. And so the best example that I can give you of this is the phrasal verb go off. If I tell you something goes off, you're going to think of an alarm clock, maybe some kind of alarm or sensor in a system or a bomb or something like that. But look at it from the point of view of somebody who's using English as a second language. Something's going to go, which means something's going to change, something's going to move. And then you're finding this word off, which means to not be active. However, if I'm saying my sensor or my alarm is going off, it actually means it's turning on. Do you see how confusing that can be for somebody who's learning a second language? And so these are called phrasal verbs. Phrasal verbs are verbs that we use and combine them with prepositions to have a different meaning. Some different examples would be to set off or to see off, or for some examples that don't use the word off, to try on, to see, let me see, to go on, for example, to find out. These kinds of words where you're changing the meaning of an original verb by adding another word to it. And one of the easiest ways that you can clarify your language and technical communication is to just not use them. Instead of saying to go off, you say to activate. Instead of saying it turned out to be, it resulted in. Instead of saying we carried out an experiment, it's we conducted. Those kinds of singular verbs that have one concrete meaning are way, way better to use instead of two words because it goes back to that concept of concision. Once you introduce more words into a system that are necessary, you are complicating the message and increasing the chance for misinterpretation. That's huge. And I would almost just add to that that even if you're working with, with other members who have English as a first language, that this can probably be very beneficial. So Dave, I, I appreciate that piece of advice and really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation today. I, I know no doubt that we'll have many more between the two of us in the future, but it was great to be able to get you on the show here and share your insight and your experiences with, with all of our listeners. listeners. So again, thank you very much. Thanks for the chance to be here, Chris. Love what you guys are doing. Awesome. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, or questions. Go over to engineeringcareercoach.com and either search for this episode and leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and are going to respond if you leave us one. Or you can find us on Twitter via the handle at engineercoach. That's at E-N-G career coach. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you're hearing, please visit the Engineering Career Coach podcast at iTunes and share a five-star rating. Thank you. So until next time, please continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.